Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the occasional podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. This episode was recorded on January 29th, 2020. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor of law at Indiana University in Indianapolis. Today, I'm joined by Christopher Robertson, Associate Dean for Research and Innovation and Professor of Law at the University of Arizona. His scholarship is well known to pod listeners and includes publications in leading law reviews and outlets such as the New England Journal of Medicine. He's routinely featured in national media such as the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. His latest book is Exposed, and it was published this month by Harvard University Press. Welcome back to the pod, Chris. Thanks so much, Nick. Great to be here. So Exposed is a fine piece of work. And I might add a good read, which is not something I say a lot of a lot of books about health insurance are. So in my own feeble way, I thought the sort of the nut of the book, if you like, was that cost exposure, which is what you're discussing, is a terrible rationing mechanism based as it is on a sort of a misreading or miscalibration of moral hazard. And it operates as a poor substitute for tackling wasteful spending or other cost issues. Is that close or are you now incredibly relieved I wasn't responsible for composing the blurb on the book cover? No, that's that's exactly it. And and I use the word cost exposure to include things like copays, deductibles, and and you know co-insurance at say 18% of hospital charges. And and so those I bundle them together and call them cost exposure rather than out-of-pocket payments or cost sharing and we can talk about you know why I make that point, but 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 you're exactly right. It, it's been a US experiment I think, for 30 or 40 years that that's largely failed to live up to its promise. This represents, uh, I think, a bit of a fork in our policy analysis. For decades, most of our health policy discussion, Uwe Reinhardt aside, has been about the uninsured. Uh, health rationing was achieved, according to scholars such as Beatrix Hoffman, by excluding a broad swathe from any coverage. Your picture is more complex, sort of talking about some zones in, in the introduction to the book. That's right. So I really do think the next wave of healthcare reform will have to wrestle with not just uninsurance, but the quality of our coverage and the problem of underinsurance. And partly that's a political issue. You know, now, 90% of Americans do have health insurance coverage. So if you're going to rally them to another wave of reform, I think uh, improving the quality of coverage has to be a central part of that, um, even if we also move the ball and get the last 10% covered as part of the reform as well. So uh, so that really is essential. And, and then when you really think about how cost exposure works, um, it really is proportional forms of uninsurance that you move through during the course of a policy year. You know, a deductible is literally means that you are uninsured for the first, say, $3,000 of healthcare expenses that you're going to have in that given year. You get no help from the insurer. Now, they may have negotiated down the prices and but when they built the network, etc., but they're not paying for the care itself. So that actually is a form of uninsurance, even for people that have insurance coverage. And then the second zone, once you've met your deductible, I call some insurance because, you know, if you have to pay an 18% copay, um, then, you know, you're getting um, 82% uh, of the health insurance, uh, of the of the uh, healthcare costs covered by insurance. And then there's this third feature in uh, health insurance policies. By the way, the Affordable Care Act requires all policies now to have a maximum out-of-pocket uh, 
uh, limitation, which is sometimes called the the catastrophic cap. And once you've hit that amount of cost exposure, you know, say spent uh, eight or nine thousand in a year, and you sort of flip into that third zone of then finally you are fully insured for the rest of the costs that year. So in any given patient, uh, you know, their journey is taking them through these three zones every single year. Um, if they're um, if they're having high costs healthcare that year, from no insurance to some insurance to full insurance. It's it's slightly odd to me that this is a bit of a surprise because the ACA to an extent sort of previews this because as you point out, the ACA does not have cost exposure on preventative care. And also if you look at the exchanges, they included cost sharing subsidies for certain cohorts. So it's it's something that policymakers must have known about to an extent. Yeah, it's really striking the effort that that went into constructing the individual marketplaces, um, even though that, you know, they cover a relatively small portion of the U.S. population, they get a disproportionate amount of our attention. And one of the striking innovations there was these cross subsidies so that lower income individuals in the exchanges would have cost exposure reduced on a sliding scale um, to make sure that those deductibles and copays would be uh, bearable for them. Um, In the market that covers the two larger markets for the U.S., Medicare uh, has no has no cap on cost exposure at all, and it sure isn't income scaled. <laughs> and similarly, the employer market, um, where 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 most working age Americans are, are covered, um, uh, you know, the CEO of the company may have the same cost exposure as the the lowliest janitor in the company, even though they have radically different abilities to bear those costs. And on the exchanges, we have highly structured and and cleverly labeled different levels of actuarial value. And they come along with, as you go down in actuarial value, you'll also go down in premiums. Right. And, and that's pretty much lacking in the employer, group employer. Yeah, it really just depends on, you know, the individual employer, how they structure their plans. You know, and some employers have uh, zero choices. They just have one company plan. You know, some will give you an option between a, um, a high deductible health plan and a, and a PPO with a smaller deductible. And some of the largest employers might even have an HMO option as well. They will have a smaller network um, and, you know, require pre-approval to see a specialist and things like that. So, so um, you do see some variation in the employer market, but it's it's not systematized nationwide. All right. So tell me about moral hazard. Yeah. So moral hazard, the way I like to explain this concept to um, to law students and law lawyers is it's, it's really an ex- externality is the theory that health insurance comes with this nasty side effect that is designed to, you know, uh, cover us from the risk of, of bad health outcomes. But it has this nasty side effect of moral hazard which is that individuals under this theory decide what health care to consume, but the costs of that care are borne um, by others. In this case, the, the broader insurance pool of, of premium payers bear the costs of care that's consumed. So whenever you have one person deciding on the behavior and another person paying the cost of the behavior, you get this notion of an externality, which is to say you get waste. In theory, patients are going to buy a lot of health care that has very little value because they're not buying... Bu- 
bearing the costs of that health care. So they might, for example, you know, uh, agree to a, a $5,000 surgery, even though to them personally, it's only worth $100 or $200 in value. Insurance is thought to, in this way, potentially do more harm than good in our society. And I think this theory that, that was really, um, there were echoes of the theory going back even into the 1700s, but it got really prominent in U.S. Uh, um, uh, economic thinking and policy in the 1960s and 70s with people like Kenneth Arrow and Mark Pauley um, developing and promoting these ideas um, that insurance could actually do more harm than good by causing all sorts of wasteful spending. That's the basic theory I take on in chapter one. And you're a skeptic. I am. I think the research, um, uh, and there's several reasons for this. Um, one is that a, a lot of research and common sense suggests that that patients are generally not the ones who are making the ultimate decisions about what healthcare gets consumed in the United States. You know, we have all these gatekeepers in place. We have the FDA, we have, uh, you know, licensure regimes for physicians and hospitals and uh, insurance companies deciding what things are paid for. And so the notion that that, that patients are able to evaluate the care um, and decide, you know, whether it's worth its price or not, I think is largely mythological. In, in this sense, we go buy healthcare in a very different way than when we go buy a television or a vacuum cleaner. And so um, that's just one initial point is that the very model of the individual, you know, holding out her own wallet uh, is really mistaken. That said, there is a lot of research, empirical economic research, showing that when you give people more insurance, they do buy more health care. And so that was thought to be, you know, stack up the studies. Over and over and over, We've they've shown that spending stimula- uh, insurance stimulates spending. And that sounds like proof positive for the moral hazard theory. But if you think just a little closer about what insurance is doing in those settings, it's really allowing us to buy healthcare that we otherwise couldn't afford. I mean, yes, people with um, health insurance buy more patented cancer drugs, but that's because people without insurance could never afford it. You know, when median income in the US is $60,000 for a family, of course they're not going out and buying $80,000 cancer treatments when they're lacking insurance. And so uh, I, I really draw on a, a sort of new wave of, of research in the last couple of decades that's shown that the purpose of insurance really is to allow us to access care we otherwise couldn't. So that extra spending with insurance is a feature, not a bug. It's not a side effect of insurance. It's actually the purpose of having insurance in the first place is to allow us to do that extra spending. Now, that is not to say that there's no waste in our healthcare system. Of course, the system is rife with waste. But as I get in in, the, in chapter six, um, it's largely not caused by insurance. How do we know that? Well, because insurance exists all over the world, right? There's insurance in New Zealand and Japan and and um, Germany, but you see them spending half as much on their health care, even though they have more insurance. So insurance is not the cause of wasteful spending. It's things like conflicts of interest and monopoly pricing and failure to invest in good uh, biomedical science. You also, I think, very cleverly uh, say that in uh, focusing on the patient and moral hazard, we miss the real moral hazard that because of insurance providers could keep raising prices. And then you you often, um, uh, during the, through the book, you, um, you quote Elizabeth Rosenthal a few times and her work pointing out how insure, health insurers seem to have absolutely no incentive to keep prices down. Yeah, this is a fascinating phenomenon that we've ended up in in the U.S. where insurers have taken on this price plus model where, you know, they're working for employees 
employers, um, and um, they're going to build a network, you know, of, of providers. But their incentives generally aren't to reduce what the providers charge uh, and negotiate with them in that way, um, because the insurers can uh, sort of pass along the costs and add their own essentially markup to the employers. So the ultimate loser then is the patient is the patient slash employee who who forgoes wages in the U.S. in order to get that health insurance coverage, um, and that's why wages have largely been flat when adjusted for inflation for the last 30 years. So when you were researching this, did you sort of find a sort of a point in time when, if you like, the the real purpose of exposure moved away from moral hazard as its primary goal and was replaced with sort of risk shifting to patients? I mean, I think there was sort of a spike in the mid-90s when both healthcare spending and healthcare as a percentage of our GDP sort of had a nice little spike. And I, I wondered if it was around that point. You're asking a question about how the it was thought about and framed. Um, but, uh, you know, just descriptively, our shift, as you said, our shift of the risk to patients has actually just continued accelerating. Um, and even since the Affordable Care Act's been implemented, um, you know, if you look at the data for the last decade alone, deductibles have riven, risen 212% over the last decade, which is five times the rate of premiums and 10 times the rate of wages or inflation. So we really are hollowing out insurance, giving patients more and more exposure to devastating levels of risk. Um, and so I think one of the, to, to go back to your, your point of, of why, what's the theory behind um, uh, cost exposure today? You know, it's harder and harder to maintain the moral hazard theory because we actually see underconsumption of a lot of healthcare, right? We see people f- failing to take uh, their insulin, which we know is high value care for them, right? Because the risk of not taking it is is neuropathy and, and amputation. Uh, we see people, um, you know, after uh, a heart attack, failing to continue taking their statins and blood thinners, um, which have been shown to dramatically increase the risk uh, when you fail at your adherence, increase the risk of, of, of subsequent um, uh, heart attacks. And so the notion that insurance is causing overconsumption uh, is, 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 is really becoming less and less compelling. And we need to more and more think about how we design nudges and other forms of, of of support to actually get people to consume more of the high value care that's out there. I think it was in the Times today. There was a sort of one of those graphic things that you move your way through. And the idea was to sort of experience what it was like dealing with sort of poverty by having to go through all the various forms and paperwork and stuff like that, that, that folks uh, have to deal with. And I thought in chapter two, when you're talking about how we experience exposure and stress and the decision making and and these incredibly complex sort of decisions that, that folks have to make, these trade-offs and so on. I thought that was very strong. Well, thank you. I mean, two reactions. One is in other countries, they sometimes refer to um, these as user fees um, uh, rather than deductibles or copays or coinsurance. And it's when I, going back to this idea of zones of, of health insurance coverage, you know, if, if, if you think about that zone three of full coverage when you've paid uh, up to your catastrophic cap, you know, to even get to that point of getting that full benefit for an employee who's foregone wages for years and years and years to pay their health insurance premiums, and now they have a huge illness, to even get access to that uh, uh, benefit requires coming up 
up with all that cash. And research has shown that poor patients are actually less likely able, uh, as it, as common sense would suggest, come up with the, that and, and actually meet the user fee to actually take advantage of the benefit uh, they received. But um, in chapter two, the emphasis is really around um, the cognitive science uh, that's that's quickly emerging that shows um, a range of things. But but uh, the the basic theory of cost exposures that will make patients into good rationers, like that will give them skin in the game and they'll decide what good healthcare is for them. But, you know, patients are sleep deprived. Patients are scared of their own mortality. Patients are, you know, obviously they're not the experts in this realm of which cancer treatment would be optimal for them. But some of the more recent research is even showing that merely causing people to think about difficult financial questions actually consumes, absorbs some of their cognitive capacity and reduces their ability to make other complex cognitive decisions. So a lot of this research is still suggestive, but it actually suggests that exposing patients to large costs can actually undermine their ability to make good healthcare decisions by distracting them from what are already very difficult choices. And I sometimes think the insurance companies themselves are um, quite happy to sort of uh, move to a sort of almost a different conception of uh, their role. I had, I think I've told the story on the pod before, but I had some uh, elective uh, surgery last year. Um, I have incredible health insurance. I'm very lucky. Um, and when I got the bill with an extraordinary large cost exposure, I should point out, even though I was in network, the amount I didn't owe was not described as an insured amount, but was described as a planned discount. So insurers, I think more and more are thinking in themselves as having a discount plan rather than actually taking responsibility for all or most of the costs. It's like the Costco theory or the Sam's Club theory that all they're doing is helping uh, negotiate prices uh, on the other side. Of course, you know, for self-insured, uh, without getting too, you know, esoteric, I guess this is the one podcast that could handle um, the difference between self-insured employers uh, that are subject, that are not subject to um, state in- insurance laws because of ERISA preemption. But in some of those uh, for a lot of the larger companies in the U.S., they contract with Aetna or um, another, you know, Cigna or another major insurance provider. But in that context, the insurer literally is not bearing any risk. The employer's bearing the risk. They really are doing, as you say, just handling claims and building a network. Yeah, just ASO. A lot of what you talk about is the impact on individuals. And uh, there's a chapter three, which is about... Uh, uh, our empty pockets, and you you talk about uh, some of the work of, of some of our colleagues or past colleagues like Elizabeth Warren, but uh, also Melissa Jacoby and so on. Um, uh, what does this picture look like, these empty pockets? Yeah, here I'm really trying to play off the phrase, you know, out-of-pocket spending. You know, that's been the frame is that, you know, exposing patient to deductibles or copays will cause them to pull their wallet out of their pocket and pull out a $50 bill and, you know, hand it to the doctor doctor's office. And I suggest that's a rather quaint view of uh, healthcare finance today. Like it's as if it's taken from a, a Norman Rockwell painting or something. Um, in reality, we know that patients, um, uh, that Americans generally have very little liquid assets available to, to pay um, uh, a surprise medical bill. Um, some studies have shown um, that even if you take their entire net worth, uh, it might only be $80,000. And for Hispanics or 
for black Americans, it's it's a fourth of that. Um, but most of that net worth is locked up in in home value. And uh, uh, and so the actual ability to pay cash um, is vanishingly small. And so what Americans are doing instead, of course, is, is using formal and informal credit, right? Um, if you show up at the hospital um, uh, in the emergency room through an ambulance, uh, you've instantly become a debtor. Um, you're going to owe them money, even if you never hand them your credit card. Um, and, and so those forms of consumer debt um, uh, are is the single largest form of debt in the United States right now is actually from medical bills. And it's dramatically larger, 40 times larger than credit card debt um, that's non-medical. And so it's exactly right. And, and this is an area that's, that health policy scholars have not even touched yet. Um, and I think it's a really rich area to explore going further because, um, you know, insurance and debt are really just two different financing plans, right? With insurance, you're going to pay premiums in advance. And then when you have a cost, um, the cost will be spread across the premium payers. Whereas with debt, um, you get charged at the point of service, but you're going to pay it into the future. So neither one involves paying at the point of service or the point of decision making. And so there's some very interesting research uh, over the last couple decades that suggests that when people are are purchasing on credit, um, they're much more um, uh, uh, likely to spend more. Uh, there's been studies that in restaurants that if you're paying on credit, you, you leave a larger tip. And so this actually creates exactly the sort of problem that uh, cost exposure was supposed to solve, moral hazard and insurance, it actually creates a form of moral hazard uh, in debt because we've we've made cost exposure way too large. And of course, not just is it a psychological phenomenon, but when patients can literally declare bankruptcy and discharge their debt, or heaven forbid, a lot of healthcare is at the end of life. A lot of healthcare is uh, at, at the point when you're considering uh, the prospect of a of a death soon. Um, those debts uh, are then discharged as well. So the notion that there's no moral hazard in cost exposure turns out to be illusory um, because we get exactly the same sorts of problems that that insurance is supposed to cause. Uh, being caused by by cost exposure, which is just to say that again, there are other solutions to reducing wasteful spending um, aside from these sorts of uh, financial pressures on consumers, patients. Let's move on a little bit into the last couple of chapters. Uh, chapter five is called "Fixes We Could Try," and uh, perhaps you could sort of explain sort of what you're trying to do here, and then go through some of these uh, potential fixes for us. Uh, so this is the chapter where I try to think of um, how we could make cost exposure work. If we're going to stay on this agenda of leaving patients exposed to substantial costs, um, how can we make it work better? How can we achieve the original goals that motivated this particular policy choice? And um, and this is in part, uh, uh, you know, frankly, the book evolved as I was writing it and evolved over the decade that I've been writing papers in this vein, working out these ideas. I was frankly very attracted to sort of clever technocratic solutions mm -hmm. um, um, that were within the general market-based framework for health insurance. And we'll come to where the book ends up, but at least in this chapter, I'm sort of giving it the good old college try to see how far we could get along these lines. And there's basically 
um, three primary groups of reforms, and uh, I'll just list them now, and then we maybe you can decide if you want to dive into any one or all of them. The first one is is transparency. You know, if if you're going to try to use costs as, to modify patient behavior, they have to be able to know the costs and be able to make sense of the costs at the point of their healthcare decision making. And for lots of reasons, we're we're a far cry from achieving that. The second big category of reforms is that if we're going to have cost exposure at all, we should think about it like a nudge. It should be used in a surgical targeted way to push patients away from healthcare that we as a, as a society or as an insurance policy don't want them to consume. And we sure should not be trying to nudge patients away from good healthcare that we want them to consume. I earlier gave the example of insulin for diabetes or statins for heart attacks. We don't need to have cost exposure on those at all because um, we, we don't want to nudge patients away from them. And so we can talk more about how to do that. So the third bucket of potential reforms has to do with if we're going to continue on the cost exposure agenda, we need to systematically adjust it for patients' ability to pay it, just like we've done in the individual health insurance markets under Obamacare. We need that strategy in the employer markets, in the Medicare, if we switch to Medicare for all. Whatever we do, we've got to have people exposed to costs that are bearable for them. And the simplest way is to do that involve adjusting them downwards for based on income, family income. So those are the the three categories of reforms I really promote in this chapter. You described them earlier as sort of relatively technocratic ideas, which I usually associate with the idea that no one outside the Beltway believes for a second they'll have any positive impact on access or cost. But is there any research that suggests that one or more of these fixes does have some legs? Sure. So there's an entire movement around the second bucket um, called value-based insurance mm-hmm. design. Uh, and for the last 15 years, there have been a series of empirical projects, um, including some randomized trials, that show that um, targeted eliminations of cost exposure can actually help patients uh, stay on their, their drugs when we, when we want them to stay on their drugs. So that's an entire research agenda that's shown that um, smarter cost exposure can reduce some of the harms associated with cost exposure. But I put it that way, merely reducing the harms with cost exposure, because I don't think we've seen in any way a systematic solution that that cost exposure actually works in the first place. And so to chapter six and what we must do. So uh, here, um, I I thought you had your Uwe Reinhardt moment. There's a, a a wonderful sentence that you wrote, quote, to be clear, cost exposure has always been driven by a free market ideology, which only imperfectly tracks a social welfare analysis when propped up by lots of convenient assumptions. <laughs> I think that's my exam question next year. I'll just put discuss at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that would presume you've had them read the rest of the book so they can um, uh, have the basis for that argument, I think. So I'm glad I know I'll sell at least a couple books next year. <laughs> so that's right. Chapter six really is the, the final chapter where I ultimately suggest these technocratic reforms are unlikely to come into effect 
effect in a in a nearly systematic enough way to solve the problem. I mean, we've known about the problems of surprise medical building, billing and the lack of transparency. We've known about that for 20 years. But the people promoting the cost exposure agenda have not rushed out to solve that problem, right? We've known we've had cost exposure on high value care, but we haven't rushed out to solve that problem systematically. And of course, we've known that people have been exposed to too much costs according to their own income. And so this this chapter instead says, so let's get serious about this. And why don't we just look around the world and see um, some some proven uh, approaches instead. And in other health economies, like large parts of Canada, large parts of New Zealand, um, there's little or no cost exposure at all. And we see them actually hitting better uh, outcome metrics. We see them patients having greater satisfaction with their healthcare systems, and we see lower costs overall. So this is the part where I actually argue that, um, you know, if you want to get political for a second, you know, two of the Democratic candidates for the presidency um, are promoting an agenda called no more copays, no more deductibles. This is part of Sanders and Warren, uh, each of their Medicare for all plans. You know, a lot of people have focused more on single payer versus managed competition. But I suggest that actually is uh, the right agenda for reform. This experiment around cost exposure has failed. That chapter then I also say, you know, we could also get serious about what I think are three of the the real drivers of wasteful spending in the U.S., um, which are physician conflicts of interest, um, uh, monopoly pricing, um, and and failure to really invest in scientific evidence of, of what works and what doesn't. I was kind of surprised with the agency problem that you didn't add to the patient-physician agency problem, the employer-employee agency problem. Yeah, I, I decided to keep this book a little more focused at the at the at the micro decision level, at the should I consume this care or not level, because I think that's commensurate with what cost exposure is supposed to do. And so I really resisted the temptation to make this a general health policy book. Um, and so um, that's why um, I think you know if we wonder why the patient you know consumed the off-label expensive cancer drug, um, you know we can either blame the patient because she has insurance, or we can you know ask whether the physician might have had a conflict of interest involved. In that prescription. And, and so keeping that more um, localized focus is really just a stylistic choice to keep the book manageable for me and, and hopefully compelling for the reader. But it sure does not presume to, to be a complete diagnosis of health policy or even health insurance. So a final question, given that this is going to be a rip-roaring success and in a few years, your editor at uh, Harvard is going to come back and say, we want another edition or a follow-up. Is there something you think you would add to the book or something you would take out? Is there something that you're looking at into the future that might change this? Or is it going to really have to be something really quite strong, such as a universal care model or the um, outlawing of all uh, cost exposure? I do hope this book contributes to changing the rhetoric around cost exposure in the United States. In my view, we've come to a point where it's almost taken for granted. It's almost common sense that, of course, patients would bear a large portion of their costs of their care outside of health insurance premiums. And you see, you know, the book has quotes going back to Bill Clinton, you know, saying that it's about personal responsibility. And and I think it's time for us to really change that debate and and focus on, you know, how do we get the healthcare system that, that, that really works? And so I do hope it, you know, it becomes central to that conversation. And, and changes the focus. And I, and I hope the book has that role. And that was 
the week in health law. You can find Professor Robertson on Twitter at Prof C. Robertson. Chris, really enjoyed the book. Really enjoyed your uh, your thoughts. Uh, many, many thanks for coming on the show. Nick, it's my honor. I'm an avid listener and I'm excited to be a part on the other side. Show notes are at tool.com. I'm at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Thank you for joining me and have a legally interesting but healthy week.